Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at uh, what's happened to Ned Kelly. Uh, we're also going to be talking about Alzheimer's disease and climate change and all the effects of those things. All that and more coming up for your science on a Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you in the studio with me on this uh, brilliant Sunday, where uh, the world is an hour earlier today as we... um, No, an hour later. I get confused. I get confused (laughs) with daylight saving. Um, But it is... um, a fantastic sunny day. We're clearly making our way into spring as it's uh, lovely weather. There's pollen everywhere and I am sneezing like crazy, which means springtime is well and truly upon us in Canberra. But it's lovely to have you here uh, listening to Fuzzy Logic and uh, joining me in the studio today to help uh, talk about some science that's been happening to them. I've got three fantastic guests. Uh, so let's start on the, uh, my right to begin with. And uh, joining me is Joe. Good morning, Joe. Hi, Brod. How are you going? Good, good. How's your week been, mate? Any uh, scientific advances made in your world? A few scientific advances. I'm studying a Master's of Science Communication at ANU, so I've been going around uh, trying to talk to, talk to biology professors and uh, get them to explain what biology means to them. Right, and what's the conclusion so far? Uh, a whole bunch of different things depending <laughs> on who you talk to. It's very, very interesting though. Yeah, I feel like biology, I know chemistry is, is chemicals, it's easy to define and physics is kind of the laws of everything, but biology is like... There's a whole, There's a a whole bunch of aspects stuff. to it. Yeah, 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 no, it's very interesting though. Very cool. Also joining me in the studio today is uh, Ian. Good morning, Ian. Hey, Brian, how are you? Good, good. What scientific advances have you made this week? Well, I am the science communicator for Alzheimer's Australia, so obviously most of the stuff that I did this week was around Alzheimer's disease. Um, I had a really interesting chat with uh, a great man by the name of Dr. Alan Pierce on Friday for a podcast that I was doing, and we were talking about sports concussions, um, kind of topical with the NRL Grand Final today, and... Um, and, and the football season about to finish. So um, I'm not going to give too much away. But, um, yeah, we, we had a great chat about that. Basically, they're showing that you really need to be uh, taking almost a, a week off if you do get a brain concussion um, and not going straight back on the field, obviously. Yeah, I think a lot of rulings like that are coming through now. They're certainly making more rules in the NRL to, to put people out if they are having concussion. Um, but yeah, we'll have to talk a bit more about your podcast later, I reckon, Ian, because there's lots of interesting stuff happening through there. And finally in the studio on my far left is Hannah. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning, Rod. How are you going today? <laughs> I'm well, I'm well. How's your week been? Full of science? Full of science, yeah. yeah. I'm also a master's student at the ANU studying science communication and as a bit of a, a pet project in the last week, I went and tried to gauge what people on the street associate with the word science and what they hope the science that science in general can discover in the future. It's okay. been very so interesting. Were you vox popping people? Or? No, so what I had was a couple of blackboards set up. You may have even seen them if you're listening. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> set up in Garema Place and a couple of other places around Canberra. And on the blackboard was written, in the future of science, I hope we discover. And then people could come up and just write on the blackboard what they hoped that the future of science did discover for them. Um, and it was fascinating to see what people were had right. wishes for. What was the, the strangest thing you had written on the blackboard? 
Um, there were some pretty highbrow and some pretty lowbrow responses, <laughs> uh, if I'm honest. Um, there were some, some really interesting things that I wouldn't normally associate with science. A lot of very emotional connections, um, which I think we're going to talk about a bit more later as well. Things like, I hope we discover peace and I hope we discover ourselves and a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily think were science's, um, science's call to make, but it was very interesting, yeah, to see yeah. those kinds of things popping up. Ah, very crazy. And what was your favourite one on there? My favourite one, oh, I'm, a, I'm an astronomer by trade, so <laughs> lots of space stuff. Right. Really hoping to get, um, you know, light speed travel and... Yeah, uh, that kind I of hope we discover aliens. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. That came up lots of times, so that's a good one. <laughs> I think that one, yeah, that one, the out there, the unknown, um, would be very crazy. And I think that's what a lot of people in busy science isn't as, isn't it? Discovering the unknown. Yeah. Trying to get what we don't know. It's always an adventure, and I think space presents that adventure really nicely. Lots of stuff that we can't necessarily see and we just know is on the fringes of what, we, what we've already discovered. It's really yeah. exciting stuff. Very cool. And a very cool way of going about finding out these things. Just stick a blackboard in Garima Place and see what happens. Yeah, it was. Um, something different, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, hopefully you can do it again in the future. I hope so too. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we've got our panellists in, and uh, I'm here too, and uh, we're ready to get into the science. Of course, today is Sunday the 5th of October, and what happened on this day in science? Well, back in 1882, uh, we celebrate the birth of Robert Goddard, who's probably the uh, the father of modern rocketry. He's an American physicist and rocket engineer, rocket scientist. I love using that term. Wouldn't that be a great job? I'm a rocket scientist. Just like a brain surgeon. Uh, the job to have. Um, Goddard was interested in rockets from a very early age, back in 1899, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, like just launching rockets way back in the uh, 19th century. Um, 1908, he conducted static tests with small solid fuel rockets. He developed a lot of the mathematical theories of rocket propulsions and also proved that rockets would actually work in a vacuum uh, for space flight. Uh, during World War One, Goddard developed rocket weapons, um, and he also wrote uh, a method of reaching extreme altitudes in 1919. And then over the decades, he developed uh, a number of large liquid fuel rockets at his shop, uh, and uh, rocket-assisted takeoff of Navy carrier planes and a whole lot of different rocket motors. Um, in fact, at the time of his death, uh, Goddard held 214 patents in rocketry. That's a whole lot of rockets. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of patents. Yeah. yeah, and we clearly owe a lot of our current rocket technology to Goddard. Um, and in fact, the uh, NASA's uh, center in Maryland is the Goddard Space Flight Center, named after Robert Goddard, born this day in 1882. Uh, also on this day, back in uh, 1582, um, we're, we were talking about daylight saving earlier and the fact that some people struggle with um, the hour change. Um, I actually had a New Zealand housemate who first experienced daylight saving in the um, the, the March version where you put your clocks back an hour, um, but he'd, he'd got the message that there was daylight saving but hadn't got the message about which way to put his clocks, so he put his clock forward <laughs> an hour. And it wasn't till about 4.30 in the afternoon when I saw him sitting down at the table having dinner... <laughs> That's still an early dinner. <laughs> yeah, but I realised he got... I said to him, James, why are you having dinner? He said... It's it's six thirty, isn't it? I said no, James. It's four thirty. <laughs> he'd, he'd been confused the whole day why things were a bit out of whack. Um, 
But back in 1582, they took daylight saving to the extreme. They didn't just put their clocks forward an hour. They put their clocks forward ten days. Um, what? Yeah, okay. So it wasn't quite daylight saving, but it was a change of calendar. Um, on this day in 1582, Pope Gregory Thirteenth introduced a new calendar, which is uh, what we now know as the Gregorian calendar, which is what we operate on. So changing over from the Julian calendar, um, which was used, and... To help bring things back into alignment, they skipped 10 days. So they went straight from Thursday the 4th of October, 1582, to Friday the 15th of October, 1582. Uh, and this was called the New Style Calendar at the time, or NS. Uh, and it happened in Italy and uh, other Catholic countries such as Spain, Portugal and Poland um, to bring everyone into line with the calendar. Um, this this calendar was actually a bit more more accurate, um, although it only differed by 0.02% from the Julian calendar that we were uh, they were currently working with. And one of the biggest uh, things the calendar did was redefine the leap year. Um, so uh, previous to that, the leap year had been just every four years, um, but the uh, Gregorian calendar defined the leap year as every year that is exactly divisible by four is a leap year except for years that are exactly divisible by 100. But these centurial years are leap years if they are exactly divisible by 400. So that means that <laughs> years like 1700, 1800 and 1900 aren't leap years, but the year 2000 was a leap year because that's divisible mm, yeah. by 400. So okay. there you go. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> so that's uh, how we define the leap year, and it means that uh, the average length of a year on Earth is 365.24 something, something, something days because of that. But it keeps us reasonably accurate as we work through this day in science. So, yeah. All right, what's been happening? Let's move into the future now and uh, have a look at what's been happening this week in science. Um, I don't know if any of you are that interested in the story of Ned Kelly. Uh, have any of you been to Glen Rowan? I haven't, no. Have not? No. No, no. Oh, should travel there. I actually, one of my favourite bits of Ned Kelly um, isn't him himself, but the, uh, the, the original Adventures of the Kelly Gang movie, which is one of the earliest pieces of uh, feature film, uh, which was made here in Australia. Um, and if you ever get the chance to go to the National Film and Sound Archive, you can see this, this film, which is, um, I think they only have, a few minutes of the the, the hour long um, movie uh, are left, um, but there's some there's some really good bits you can see where they actually. One of my favourites is when they're having the siege in Glen Rowan and the big standoff, and they set fire to the building. Um, and of course, it's black and white film, so how can we simulate fire here? And the, the, they they put the film in a red wash, um, so so the film goes from being black and white to being red and black in in a way um, as they washed it through the red there and and you can see the fire happening. So it's a really interesting piece to look Mm. at. Um, But um, in the actual history of the Kelly gang and uh, Ned Kelly himself, um, CSIRO have uh, just released a book uh, called Ned Kelly Under the Microscope where they're trying to provide some um, definitive answers to some of the mysteries of Ned Kelly's life and death uh, using over 30 experts um, looking at historical documents and complex science as well and uh, looking at some of the myths um, that have arisen around Ned Kelly too. because his remains have actually revealed a, a lot of answers about the, d- the debates around him, including where he was buried, um, whether a post-mortem was conducted on him. And one of the biggest mysteries is what became of Ned's head. 
because um, uh, Ned was uh, hanged at Old Melbourne Jail back in 11th November 1880, and his body, body was buried in a grave there. Um, but there were lots of stories at the time that his uh, skull was actually separated um, and used as a paperweight or a, a trophy um, by the jailers there. Um, but eventually this head was put on display in the Museum of the Old Melbourne Jail uh, until it was stolen in 1978. Uh but then they eventually found it again uh, when a West Australian farmer, Thomas Baxter, uh, returned it in 2009. Um, and this skull, which is, has become known as the Baxter skull, was confirmed to be the same one that had been on display in Old Melbourne Jail uh, for many, many years. But they weren't certain that it was actually Ned's head that that skull was. So they started by doing some um, craniofacial superimposition uh so putting Ned's face over the skull, and they actually did this using Ned Kelly's death mask. Um, have you guys seen Ned Kelly's death mask? That's located in the Melbourne Jail as well, is it? Or is that or in the museum, rather, the, down there? Uh, it could be, and I think there's actually a copy in our National Portrait Gallery as well. Uh, so you can go and check that out. What is a death mask? Sorry, Rod. It's it's as the name implies. It's um, the the face of the person as they died. So they actually kind of took um, a cast of of Ned Kelly's face yeah. upon death, and mm. uh, then um, have created the uh, the positive to go in that. A fun fact on death masks: yeah. the little Annie dolls. If you ever do a CPR course, mm-hmm. you know the Annie dolls that have the uh, removable uh, face mask that you can do the CPR on. Oh yeah. yes. The uh, the gentleman that invented that doll actually used his daughter's uh, death mask for the face of the original ones. Fun fact. Mm. Fun? Would we call that a fun <laughs> fact? A fact, nonetheless. <laughs> Sweet, but slightly morbid. That's um, so the uh, the scientists were working with Ned Kelly's death mask and uh, superimposing it over the skull, and it was pretty similar, kind of close fit. Um, but then they decided to do some DNA examination as well and found that actually it wasn't Ned Kelly's skull. Mm. Uh, some of the circumstantial evidence around the time pointed at uh, it's pointed to the skull belonging to uh, Frederick Deeming, who was a, a multiple murderer around the same time as Ned Kelly. Uh, but the only way to confirm that was um, to put forth uh, a, a request to exhume not uh, Deeming's remains, because they didn't have them, uh, but the remains of his brother, Thomas Bailey, uh, to obtain a DNA sample. And uh, so scientists did this, and uh, uh, but unfortunately after due process it was found that the skull didn't belong to Frederick Deeming either. So we currently have a skull that doesn't belong to Ned Kelly and a mysterious missing skull of Ned Kelly as well. Wow. So there you go. So there's a whole lot more that can be read in the the CSIRO book Ned Kelly Under the Microscope, which has just come out this week, so you can discover more about the mystery of the Kelly gang. Anyway, we've got a lot to get through today, and I know Ian and Joe and Han have a whole lot more to share with us, uh, so we're going to get into it really soon. Uh, but before we do, let's jump into a song. <laughs> Missy Higgins there with her new song, NYE, New Year's Eve. Oh, and she's going again. <laughs> Thanks, Missy. We'll just fade you out there. And uh, clearly someone's press repeat on the uh, tracks today, but we're not going to repeat anything here. We've got a whole lot more science, new science coming up for you guys today. And uh, let's get straight into it here on Fuzzy Logic. Um, 
Let's have a look at a, a bit of research that's coming out of the University of Chicago looking at smell and what that might be a predictor for. Uh, some of the researchers there uh, were doing smell tests with adults and they were looking at five um, different odours. They were looking at peppermint, fish, orange, rose and leather. So some pleasant, some unpleasant odours. And uh, they were studying 3,000 people aged 57 to 85. Uh, and in this uh, test, uh, about 78% of those people being tested were able to identify four of the five scents and uh, so were classified as having a normal sense of smell. Um, I'm going to have to get my enunciation right. Sense and scent. <laughs> um so normal sense of spell, uh, about 20% got two or three of the scents right, uh, while the remaining 3.5% could only identify one or none of the five. Uh, so what does this actually mean? Well, this study was done uh, back in 2005 uh, using these uh, smells, and they followed uh, the people that uh, were smelling this, uh, these scents over the next few years. And in 2010 and 11, the team actually confirmed which of those participants were still alive. Uh, during the, the five years that had passed, uh, 430 of the 3,005 subjects passed away, uh, or 12.5%. Interestingly, those with greater smell, to- smell loss when first tested were substantially more likely to have died five years later, which is interesting to see that uh, this uh, loss of smell or uh, olfactory dysfunction was uh, better at predicting mortality than a diagnosis of heart failure, cancer or lung disease. Only severe liver failure was a more powerful predictor of death. Uh, so this is, I mean, it's really interesting to see. Um, a healthy uh, olfactory system, a healthy nose, has stem cells that self-regenerate in there to help um, keep that smell going on. Um, but a loss of smell could be an indicator in uh, signalling a decrease in the body's ability to rebuild key components and uh, a harbinger for more serious death problems. It's a really interesting predicament there. It's, it's very interesting. Sense got a, there's, there's so many interesting things. I've read a study recently that said people with psychopathic tendencies have a better sense of smell. Another right. fun fact. Hmm. I wonder why that is. It enhanced sensory perceptions or... I think for me to believe the study a bit more, I'd want I'd want them to be followed from an earlier age, I suppose, because mm. you don't really know what their sense of smell has been prior to them being 58 years old. And I'm always really sceptical of things like that when you say, we follow them for five years and this is what's happened. But, you know, putting it out there, what about things, what, when they, what they did when they were younger, which could have affected their sense of smell, yeah. um, all that sort of stuff. So... I'm going to put the the sceptical view on it, but I'm sure it's a legitimate study and they covered all that, but without reading it. Yeah, well, that's right, but it is just one study too uh, and only looking at five years. I know my great-uncle had a stroke uh, 11 years ago now and uh, that caused him to lose most of his sense of smell and taste after that, but he's still kicking on. 10, 11 years later, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so different things. The way that I see it, I mean, it's quite a morbid, morbid sort of story, really, but it's also really exciting in my mind. I mean, if you can go for health checkups and, and doctors will start to make that part of a routine to do an, um, a smell test of sorts, <laughs> and, you know, if people come up with these abnormal results, well, maybe we'll test for heart disease or something like that. Well, that's It'd be right. really interesting to see how much further it goes and whether by the time that 
you know, we're getting to that age. That's part of the regular checkup. Yeah, so make it a positive rather than a yeah, negative. Okay, definitely. there's something going on here. Let's look at how we can make uh, make your body work for a bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, these predictors of death in general can be a bit morbid, can't they? Like, no one wants to be told they've got X amount of time left. It, it doesn't sort of make you feel good. But if you can frame it in a positive way, I think that can uh, that can help help you out there. Well, I mean, in a way it makes sense in that if you're, if you're losing your sense of smell, there's obviously something happening in your brain that means that you're losing that sense and so therefore there's probably some issue in your brain that's, you know, telling you you need to get checked out a bit more. But, um, yeah, I mean, who knows? It could be other issues as well. It could be as simple as, you know, you have a cold or something like that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But, I mean, coming back to the brain stuff there, Ian, you do a, a lot of work with um, Alzheimer's Australia, um, and so you would know a lot about how things going on in the brain can start affecting our bodies and, and that sort of thing there. Yeah, so I'm actually... One of the really cool parts of my job is that I'm funded by the government to produce a fortnightly newsletter on the latest dementia research. Um, and it can be anything. It can be global stuff. It could be local stuff. It can be things happening anywhere. Um, and the best part about it is I can be as critical as I want about the study. Obviously, it gets checked over by people to make sure I'm not too <laughs> opinionated. Um, but it links in really well with actually a study that I wrote about late last year, which was really novel. It was a bit quirky where they used peanut butter as a smell test for Alzheimer's disease. Um, I've heard about this. (laughs) There is a lot of links between losing your sense of smell and Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, Same thing as I was talking about before because it's one of the senses that tends to go first from from your brain signals. Um, And once again, I was a little bit... uh, skeptical about the study because it was only a pilot trial um and it was yeah all everyone was sort of taking the quirky angle um but i was actually like well these are like i spoke to the researcher even and said like oh i'd love to like talk to you about and get more information and she was like yeah we still need to find out so much more about like other issues that might be happening in the brain and all sorts of things but um yeah, there's potential there for, for smell tests to be used for, for diseases such as Alzheimer's disease um, and, and other things that we were talking about before, like heart disease and, and that sort of stuff. Right. Why did they pick peanut butter? Do you know? I do not know, no. no. There, there was a reason, and I shouldn't really say it, but I can't remember no. why. <laughs> why <laughs> that's okay. I mean, it just seems like, because it's not a particularly strong, maybe, well, maybe that was why. It's not a particularly strong yeah, smell. There was definitely a reason behind it, but... yeah. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. I have to go back and read the article. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pull together a study from the lunchroom uh, before a meeting with the boss or something. Yeah, that's right. What do we got? We got peanut butter or Vegemite. That's the other thing yeah. that my boss had to pull me up on was that um, I started writing the methods that they used in the article, and he's like, oh, wait a second, people will start self-diagnosing themselves. Yes. <laughs> they can't smell peanut butter. So I had to take everything out of, like, they used, well, like they were using a ruler and all sorts of things to be able to scientifically measure how close they could smell it. And then there was that then sort of they could say, well, this is the reason why, um, you know, you're 10 centimetres, you're 15 centimetres, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'm just really interested to know whether self-diagnosing is quite a big issue with Alzheimer's and things, other mental health sort Definitely, of stuff. yeah. We call him Dr. Google. Right. Yeah. Ah, the old Dr. Google. Big issue in the medical industry, yeah. I believe. Um, a common occurrence for me on a, on a regular basis is sort of debunking myth. Uh, a big one for us is um, anecdotal evidence compared to scientific evidence. So... It was annoying me so much that I ended up writing an article telling people that coconut oil cannot cure dementia mm. um, because it's out there in Google on various websites. There's even a website called coconutoil.com, and you get um, celebrities saying that coconut oil is amazing for skin and for all sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, coconut oil does not cure dementia, just putting that out there. <laughs> Right. Glad we cleared that one up today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because communicating those issues must be really important um, to the, the community because, I mean, uh, certainly I've uh, experienced dementia in my family and I'd say it's probably touched a lot of families out mm. there and it's mm. it's very much an unknown sort of thing because I know um, people with dementia who've... Um, uh, who've and I'm going to say suffered with it, but I know that's a term that uh, you don't like... Um, uh, it's, it's a term that people with dementia yeah. don't like, um, but it is a term that gets used so often. Like, and you say it for other diseases yeah. as well. So you suffer from cancer, mm. um, but it's because dementia has the progressional symptoms that someone in their early stages of dementia isn't suffering, mm. but probably in the later stages they would be going through some form of pain or something like that but they just don't like using the word suffering and we have yeah. actually um language guidelines that we put out there and, and tell people to to use instead of other words the one that um i got in trouble for actually using was saying that a carer was burdened with a person with dementia yeah and i didn't actually say it myself i was just actually repeating the title of a study yeah but someone pulled me up on it and said we don't like to use the word burden um but yeah it's interesting about researchers using certain terminology and the public not liking it mm. that's a whole nother issue i think yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean it is kind of true in a way like i um used to go to a, a church with a lot of older uh people and there were certainly some uh there were a couple of people there who had dementia but i i wouldn't say they suffered from it at all they they were quite happy people um and you know i remember um one day uh um, one of these ladies came up to my mum and she said, Susan, and she remembered her name quite well, Susan, who's that man you're with? And that's, that's my husband. Yes, yes, what's his name? Peter. <gasps> Peter! That's right! And she'd been struggling all day, just, you know, but she was more than aware that she was suffering, oh, she was, um, struggling with remembering things, but, but quite happy and quite, quite, um, active still uh, with her dementia until eventually after a few years it, it uh, de uh, degraded. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating with the brain as well that you can be having um, a conversation with someone with the early stages of dementia and they'll be telling you about their childhood and their school years, no problems, but then you'll be rehaving this conversation five minutes later because it's the short-term memory that mm. tends to go first um, and that's where they forget things like names of someone that they've just met but they'll remember all their kids' names um, and their pet from when they were five years old yeah. um, because the long-term memory is still there. Do you think the the tendency to use words like suffering and stuff then comes from the family? Because with a lot of those ongoing um, you know, diseases and conditions, it's, it is really difficult for a family. I, I have dementia in my family as well. And I think that's probably where a lot of it comes from in my own mind is that oh, this is hard for me to watch. 
notes. Yeah, I agree. Um, when I wrote, well, actually, I put a blog on our website. A person with dementia wrote an article basically saying um, that she didn't like people using the word suffering. And the people that commented back on that article were the carers mm. saying, well, I had to watch, you know, my husband, my partner, um, grandmother go through it. And to me, it looked like they were suffering. Right. Um, and that's where it, it comes from. But, um, yeah, I don't really have much of an, an opinion on it, um, really, personally. But... um. I definitely know with some of the people that I see out there throughout Simons Australia, they're definitely not suffering, um, but there probably are people out there in aged care facilities in some cases who are in the later stages that mm. might be suffering from other things, but is it the dementia that they're suffering from or is it, yeah, the fact that other things are, are going um, through them? Who knows? Yeah. I see. Oh, very interesting. Uh, and I, I think your job's quite interesting too, to be able to communicate some of that high-level research out to, to the general um, community too. You know, how, how do you find um, that's accepted, communicating um, the, the new research in those yeah, sorts of Yeah, so things? when I started in the role, I was quite passionate about communicating the research in different ways. Um, so I write articles or, or blogs, really, um, because it's very simplified what I write about. Um, or, well, I write about in a simple way, I suppose. Um, but then I also was really um, keen on starting up a podcast as well, where I just kind of like what we're doing. We just talk about talk to researchers about what they do, because I still think there's no one better out there to talk about their own research than the researcher themselves. And if you can get them really passionate and, and really enthusiastic about talking about their research, then it comes out really well. Um, and I also did a video series um, where we filmed some researchers and just got them to talk about what they're doing and, and that sort of stuff. So kind of getting it out there in different ways yeah. was something that I was really keen on doing right. and not just having the generic, here's an article every week um, <laughs> on what's happening. Yeah, yeah. well, we've actually got a couple of uh, clips from an interview you did recently uh, here, Ian. Do you want to um, tell us a little bit about um, the, the scientist in this interview? Yeah, so it links in really well with what we were talking about with uh, diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. So um, I'm talking in this interview to a scientist by the name of Sean Frost, who's based at the Preventative Health Flagship at CSIRO. And what Sean is doing with his research is actually looking at the eyes. Um, so he could basically suggest from taking an eye, or a really high-resolution photo in the back of your retina, um, and they can actually look at biomarkers which are associated with Alzheimer's disease that you would normally see in, say, a brain PET scan, um, which stands for... Does anyone remember what a PET scan... I think it's <laughs> POSA something commission... Uh, I'm not even going to bother trying. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's all pretend we know what a PET scan is. Um, that's kind of the current gold standard. So what they're doing is actually looking at their eye scan compared to the gold standard PET scan, and they're having almost 100% success. So I asked Sean to tell us a bit more about his his study, basically. All right, let's have a listen to Sean. The eye test we're currently trialling identifies amyloid plaques, the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease in the retina at the back of the eye. Uh, in the brain, these plaques are a major pathology or signpost of Alzheimer's, and our uh, preliminary results suggest that they also occur in the retina and that the amount of plaque that we see in the retina mirrors the amount in the brain. Importantly, it's much easier to detect them in the retina where we can see through the transparent layers of the eye with specialised cameras, so possible that the eye test 
could be a practical, non-invasive way to determine for certain whether an individual's memory problems or dementia are due to Alzheimer's or a different cause, and hence proceed with appropriate treatment. Uh, but what we envisage for this test actually is much more powerful than that, and that's about early detection of Alzheimer's disease. So when individuals approach doctors about memory problems and get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, we know now that it's quite late in the disease process. The amyloid plaques start building up in the brain decades before diagnosis occurs and the disease is silently attacking the brain over that lengthy preclinical period, uh, eventually leading to those memory problems that characterise Alzheimer's. So the main key to, to treating Alzheimer's effectively is likely to be detecting it early and if the eye test can be shown to faithfully represent what's happening in the brain in terms of amyloid deposition, then you'll have the makings of a practical test uh, that can detect Alzheimer's decades earlier. So a little bit more complicated than smelling peanut butter, um, but it sounds like a really important test that Sean's working on there. Yeah, so I um, initially found out about Sean's research at um, one of the biggest Alzheimer's uh, research conferences in the world. So it's called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. And this year it was in Copenhagen um, in Denmark. And basically, they select out of 6,000 researchers about 10 researchers to highlight their research and Sean was one of these um, and it made global media attention, um, you know, New York Times, those sorts of um, newspapers and magazines were all talking about it. So when Sean came back to the country, I was like, I also want to talk to you about what you're doing. <laughs> um, so I guess to put his stuff into a bit more perspective, um, we also spoke about this in the interview, um, but basically we're, there's not a great way at the moment where we can diagnose Alzheimer's disease 100%. Um, so like I was saying, there's the PET scan, which is out there, which is a good way of looking at what we call biomarkers, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease. So if you have a certain number of these biomarkers, proteins, plaques in the brain, um, then they're potentially going to say, you know, we need to keep an eye on you um, and, and keep need to retest and things like that. But with things like memory tests, which are another common thing that people might just Google and do. Um, really, uh, your memory starts to go when um, you first notice symptoms. The best thing about this test is that you can actually see it before symptoms even occur, as wow. much as tw 10 to 20 years before symptoms occur. So wow. the next question that I asked Sean was basically, how did you even find out about this? Why did you go to the eyes to, to look for this biomarker? Uh, Dr. Sean Frost there talking to Ian about uh, his new test looking at uh, a way to test for Alzheimer's through the eyes, which is pretty amazing. Uh, the time is 11.13 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. Let's just have a short music break. This is Courtney Barnett with Pickles from the Jar. 
and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic right here on 2XXFM. The time is 12.16 and uh, hopefully you've all adjusted your clocks as they haven't done in the studio here yet. Um, but that's what you get with a fantastic digital display like this one. <laughs> uh, Broderick here in the studio with Joe, Ian and Hannah and uh, we've been talking Alzheimer's science earlier today with Ian and uh, interestingly Hannah was saying in the break that... Um, on some of the blackboards that she had in uh, Garima Place earlier this week talking about the future of science, Alzheimer's featured quite strongly. Yeah, mental health, whether it's just in people's minds at the moment or um, whether it really is an, an underspoken about, I guess, or under-publicised uh, scientific issue, mental health came up very, very often, certainly. Yeah, uh, really important stuff. Um, out of interest, just because I'm going to segue to it in a moment, did climate change make any appearance on the board? Uh, I, I took evaluation from several hundred people over the last week. Yeah. Um, climate science came up twice. Twice, wow. Mm. Um, only twice. And one was from, once was from a friend of mine who also noticed the lack of <laughs> climate change written on the board, which is disappointing. Yeah, uh, that is interesting because you think in Canberra there is a lot of um, green supporters yep. and a lot of climate scientists in Canberra, so that's, yeah. that really interests me. It, yeah, it was very surprising. Is it climate fatigue or just people, it's not top of mind? Or do they just think we're going to have salt at pie of the future? I don't know. I think maybe <laughs> it comes down to not being able to, to as person, easily personally relate to climate change as something like Alzheimer's or um, ADHD was one that was mentioned a lot, autism, that kind of thing. These kinds of, and depression particularly, came up very often. These sorts of mental health things, you can experience them in your everyday life, but maybe climate change is a bit too removed from that. I'm not too sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting you talk about climate change being removed from that sort of sector um, uh, and removed from the, the emotions that we do associate with Alzheimer's because certainly when we start talking about Alzheimer's and dementia, I get emotional about that because I have a family connection, yeah. as I'm sure you do. Yeah, um, definitely. And you probably experience it quite a lot, the emotions uh, are behind it. Um, but those emotions aren't really necessarily behind climate change because quite often it's just scientific research there. Uh, but I know, Joe, you've been doing a project recently that has been trying to um, not inject emotion behind climate change because it's, it's not uh, falsely putting it in there, but, but find that emotion that does exist with climate change. Yeah, for sure. Just trying to highlight that um, there is emotion behind climate change and that it, it can affect people in that way. I mean, we look at things like, we said, depression and, and Alzheimer's. You have that, or a lot of people have that connection to it, and, and it can evoke those emotions. But climate change, is, it's been coined as a, a wicked problem because you can't see its impacts immediately, nor can you see the benefits of acting against it. And so it's really hard to, uh, to relate to it. And, yeah, I've actually I've started a project called Is This How You Feel? Um, and I've contacted a bunch of Australia's leading climate researchers and asked them to pen handwritten letters on how climate change makes them feel yeah. just to try and give scientists the chance to step away from the clinical pros and the dry data and the things that they so regularly use to communicate climate change. I mean, speaking that way and, and writing that way is important when they're communicating with other scientists, but it's not the best way to communicate with the general public. Mm. So what sort of emotions have you been finding in these letters? It's been really, really varied. I, I expected uh, fear to be uh, prominent, um, anger too, and, and definitely a lot of scientists are scared and angry. Angry because people aren't listening and scared because they know what the repercussions of a changing climate are. But also there's a, a whole bunch of hope. You know, scientists, uh, the majority of the scientists know that we, we can 
fight climate change and we can take action now to prevent the worst of its impacts. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say there's hope there because I feel like uh, in the the general community um, there's there can be a lot of climate fatigue, which is when people just get hear so much about climate change and so much about it all the time they just get sick of it and go. I can't, I can't care anymore. I'm very apathetic about it all. Um, it, that's not the case with the scientists? Uh, no, no. It's, it's, it's their lives, I suppose. You know, they've been communicating, a lot of them, for communicating on climate change for over two decades, um, and they're still passionate about it. And that, that's coming through in these letters, you know. And, and, yeah, frustration, the fact that they have been communicating it about, for it, about it for 20 years and people aren't listening. Yeah, I mean, it would be frustrating, you know, you're doing your life's work and, you know, you do your life's work for a reason because you're passionate about it, you're interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if no one's listening to that, it's got to be got to be terrible um, to, to hear from. Um, do you have any uh, letters with you today? I, I don't have any letters with me right now. I, I don't think I might be able to find one in, in a second. Yeah. But we've, we've had people contributing... Like uh, Professor Will Stephan, Professor Les- Leslie Hughes, people that uh, both these individuals were founders of the Climate Council yeah. and uh, people that are directors of um, organisations in, in universities, people that are at the forefront of the science and really in the best position to uh, to talk about this topic. And, and it's phenomenal to give them that chance to use emotion. They, they seem to really be relishing that opportunity and... and the words they're using and the passion that's coming forward is is amazing. Yeah. Do you think it's having an effect on on people outside the scientific community? I'd like to think so. I mean, at this stage, um, the website can be found at, at isthishowyoufeel.weebly.com. Yeah. Um, and we've had a lot of people, uh, I've received handwritten letters, I've received emails, people have been coming up and talking to me saying it has affected them. Um, we had a, a small exhibition at uh, the ANU School of Art and, and some of the feedback we got was really touching. People saying that they didn't care about climate change in the past. They knew it was a problem, but they were completely indifferent to it. And, and after reading the letters, all of a sudden they've been, able to, they've been able to relate to it, see that it does affect people and understand how it can impact them. And it's made them want to learn more about it, which is really the point. We're trying to get people to connect and to see that climate change is something relevant to them so that they're more willing to explore the science further and be put in a better position to... Uh, to act against climate change. Yeah. I think that's really fantastic and, and to give people that um, opportunity to, to write their, themselves. Uh, they can submit their own letters to the website? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, we've got a Twitter, a Twitter account um, with, uh, and we're using the hashtag, uh, hashtag is this how you feel, and yeah, there's the opportunity there for anybody to write their own letters upload them to Twitter and then we'll take them from Twitter and, and feature them on our website. And we've had people from as far away as Canada contributing letters. It's It's been fantastic. Yeah. That is amazing. It was interesting. I was just going to um, think about something that I did last year. I actually ran in a, a job that I had at ANU, a panel discussion around climate change in cities. And I remember it was everyone, it was that cringe moment Um where one person in the crowd was like, look, I don't think climate change is real because we're in September now and it's still snowing in Threadbow. Like, what's going on? There's no such thing as climate change. Like, I think there's that uh, a lot of that out there. Um, mm. 
And the other thing that interests me at the moment is that I think there definitely could be a personal connection to it, but maybe Australia's the wrong place. Like, there's the personal connection when there's fires, um, when there's, you know, a bad storm, that sort of stuff. People immediately think climate change. But there's nothing really out there that much about a really severe storm that's happening in Japan at the moment. Like, I looked at the, the charts the other day. It looks terrible. But, you know, you don't hear about that sort of stuff because, you know, it's not happening to us in Australia. Certainly, it's, it's sort of a... a two-part problem there i mean you uh you need to get people to understand that the basic thing the difference between weather and climate because people from both sides of the argument will say oh it's snowing now it's getting colder therefore climate change isn't real but but also it was interesting hannah and i were talking the other day about people from different places people from the cities can see the impact that humans can have over the environment and often they might be the ones that are more likely to believe in climate change whereas people in in the country still fear nature to some extent and maybe are less likely to think that we could have an impact on it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, over the last few centuries, this is getting a bit meta now, but people have been battling with the elements in in varying different ways. And now that we have these cities where you can pretty much combat whatever's going on in, again, the distinction between weather and climate, you can kind of just go about your daily business. And it, it is easy to see now that Wow, we do have this this power, for lack of a better word, over what's going on around us. And then you know, you say to somebody who still lives out on a farm, they still get um, they have a very intimate relationship with the land, and it's much more difficult to see how that that balance might be um, tipped in either direction. You know, when they're still very much affected um, and know how to react and have this two way interaction with the with the elements, and um, it's definitely a different set of audiences that makes. Again, making this personal uh, connection with the issue really, yeah, really that'd difficult. That'd be really interesting, actually, if you put your blackboards in, like, <laughs> um, Yass or, or somewhere in the country or something. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what comes up. Like, is is climate change not an issue in the city because people are thinking about other things? or But is it an issue in, you know, other places where people might be thinking, like, a farmer, an agricultural person, a horticulturalist? Um, yeah, different scope yeah, to your masters. Yeah, it would be <laughs> really interesting to see. Definitely different um, different communities reacting in different ways, for sure. That, that's a, a key, too, making climate change relevant to a whole range of demographics. Yeah. I know there are a bunch of organisations now that go around and, and look at uh, how people can change ac- agriculture in the face of a cli- changing climate and things like that. And I think that's key in communicating the message, showing that you we need to adapt mm. and you're not going to lose your livelihood, but there are things we can do because this is a real problem. And it is really easy to see how um, how hard that change would be, particularly for, you know, 20-somethings. I've done a bit of research on how um, sort of t- 18 to 25-year-olds react to climate information and a really common response is, well, my friends are still driving their car. Why should I have to change? And again, that, making that, you know, trying to put yourself in the picture of this enormous problem is, is just really incomprehensible for a lot of people. You know, it's, it's hard to see. Definitely, and even scientists are feeling that way. Actually, I, I, one of the letters I received from, from a research from UNSW said even she feels apathetic at time. Even she gets climate fatigue because she feels like she's banging her head against a brick wall. She's been arguing for so long, and but the problem's so big... It can become demoralising. Mm. Yeah. 
Very interesting stuff. Um, if you want to check out some of the letters that Joe's put together and, and even contribute yourself, I've placed a link to Is This How You Feel on our Facebook page uh, for Fuzzy Logic. So head over there, um, or you can just head to isthishowyoufeel.weebly.com and uh, check it out yourself. There's some amazing letters there and some uh, very strong feelings being put forward by the scientists, which I think just highlights how important this is to all of us. Uh, so go and check it out and uh, like our Facebook page at the same time as well. <laughs> <laughs> Fuzzy Logic with the big autumn leaf. Go and check it out. Uh, you are listening to Fuzzy Logic. The time is uh, 28 past 12. It's uh, pushing 26 degrees outside, which is just lovely. And uh, to finish off today's episode, I wanted to play a little clip uh, from a, a scientific podcast that's just made its way out there, uh, which I reckon is definitely worth a listen. Uh, it's called Dissecting Love, and it's a, a podcast about love, sex, and human evolution, you know, talking about the science behind things like why we fall in love or why we cheat and uh, how making love can alter our mood. Uh, so this podcast is put together by uh, Eddie Aloise King, who uh, was once a scientist who studied evolution and sexual selection. Uh, but now she's busy dissecting them in her podcast. And uh, so the little clip I have here is from an episode that's all about um, conflicts of interest between the different sexes and all the traits that males and females have evolved to manipulate each other. Uh, particularly this little bit talks about how conflict has shaped the evolution of one of the most interesting and underappreciated organs, the placenta. So let's have a listen to Dissecting Love. Now in evolution, it's not just important to have lots of kids. It's also important to make sure that your kids are going to have kids and that their kids are likely to have kids. So you want really good quality kids. Since males invest fewer resources in each individual mating opportunity and they're more likely to go and have sex with lots of different females, it's in their interest to make sure each female they mate with invests as much as she can in their offspring, even if that comes at a cost to her health or her future reproductive opportunities. Now, females also want to have top-quality offspring, but they don't want that quality to come at a cost to themselves. So here we're seeing a different type of sexual conflict, and that's the tug of war between parents in how much to invest in their kids. Now, if you're a male trying to squeeze the most juice out of your partner, what part of the baby-making process would you target? That's right, pregnancy. Pregnancy is the jackpot for males for two reasons. The first reason, mum can't back out of pregnancy without losing the offspring altogether. She can't just decide, I'm going to be half-assed pregnant today. She has to commit fully. The second reason pregnancy is an awesome target is because males have a secret weapon to help them out, the placenta. The placenta is like an undercover spy in the woman's body because it's an organ inside her that has direct access to her bloodstream. But only half of its genes belong to the woman. The other half belong to the man because, of course, the placenta is tissue that comes from the developing baby. Before I started learning about sexual conflict, I can't say that I gave the placenta much thought at all, but when I did think about it, I thought about it as a tool that helped out in this romantic, loving exchange that's happening between mum and fetus. And all I really knew about it was that it helped out by passing energy and oxygen to the fetus from the mother's blood. 
It turns out that mammals vary quite a bit in how invasive the placenta is, how much access it has to the mother's bloodstream. And humans have the most invasive type of placenta, where the placenta actually remodels mum's arteries when the embryo implants in the uterus, and that allows the cells of the fetus to literally bathe in the mother's blood. And that's not the way it is for everyone. Lots of other mammals have a few layers of cells that block the path between the mum's blood and the fetus, and that allows the mum to have a little bit more control over the exchange of nutrients. Since human babies have direct access to mum's blood, not only does she have no control over how much energy they're getting, but they can also release hormones directly into her bloodstream. And that lets them do things like raise her blood pressure so they're getting even more blood flow, or stop her from processing glucose properly so that they can have access to more of the good stuff. Obviously, the mother's body tries to resist this invasion. She clearly wants the baby to get everything it needs, but she doesn't want to turn into a buffet, because these manipulations by the fetus can be really dangerous for her. If the fetus gets too much control over her blood pressure, for example, she can end up with preeclampsia, which can be fatal. Or if the fetus messes too much with her ability to produce glucose, then she can wind up with gestational diabetes. So over time, women's bodies have developed resistance to these hormones, just to keep bub in check a bit. But sure enough, as soon as we evolved some resistance, fetuses began to up the dose of these hormones. And we can see the evidence of this conflict, this back-and-forth tug-of-war, in the bodies of pregnant women, where fetuses sometimes release hormones in absolutely huge doses. These are really potent chemicals. Usually you don't need much of a hormone to get a big reaction from the body. But due to the resistance that women have built up to these particular pregnancy-related hormones, babies need to pump mum with really big doses to see any result. And some of these hormones, like human placental lactogen, can be released into the bloodstream at a dose of about a gram a day, which is absolutely huge, and yet they have relatively minor effects due to the resistance that women have built up. And that was Eddie Alloy's King there with her podcast, Dissecting Love. If you want to have a listen to more of that, then uh, I strongly recommend you go to iTunes and download it. It's well worth a listen. It's got a few podcasts up there and more still to come. So check it out, uh, Dissecting Love with Eddie Alloy's King there. We were also talking about another podcast earlier in the show, Ian's podcast looking at Alzheimer's research. If we want to find more about that, Ian, what would we need to do? So my podcast is simply just called the Dementia News Podcast. So essentially, if you go to the podcast store and search for dementia or Alzheimer's, it should come up. I'm up to episode 17. Um, episode 17 was with Sean Frost that I was just talking to. Um, and episode 18 will be what I was talking about at the start of the um, of Fuzzy Logic, which is about brain concussions and whether there's a link to dementia with, with pit sports players, um, which, like I said, is very topical at the moment. So if you're interested, search for Dementia News at the podcast store. Fantastic. And while you're there, if you haven't already, you should sign up for the Fuzzy Logic podcast. Uh, type in Fuzzy Logic, look for that autumn leaf that is our logo, and uh, you can download all our episodes from there. And uh, we will get this episode up later today. And I think I've got a couple in backlog as well that we need to get up there. So you can listen to more uh, science if you don't get enough of a science dose right here on uh, Sunday mornings, uh, moving into the afternoon on uh, 2XXFM. And uh, moving into the afternoon, indeed, it's uh, 12.35, which means we've gone a little bit over today, so we should probably wrap things up. 
Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed listening to us uh, today. It's been a pleasure having you with us, and it's been a pleasure having these uh, fantastic guests in the studio. Thanks very much for joining us, Hannah. Thanks very much for having us on, Rod. Uh, thanks, Ian. Thank you. And Joe, thank Always you. Always a pleasure, pleasure, Broderick. Thank you. <laughs> no worries, mate. And uh, tune in again next week for more Science on a Sunday right here on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio.